0: Welcome to Accelerated, I'm your host Vitaly Golem. On this season of the podcast, we're hearing from some of the global leaders in everything electric and autonomous moving us quickly into the future. On this special bonus episode, I switched chairs with Brandon Bartneck, the host of the podcast that is coincidentally called the future of mobility, just like this season of Accelerated. Brandon has interviewed numerous leaders in mobility on his podcast, and we decided to post our conversation on both of our shows. In his day job, Brandon leads marketing at FEV, a global engineering partner for the development of sustainable mobility and energy solutions, supporting vehicle development from concept through production. This includes intelligent software development, propulsion system development, and full vehicle engineering. Brandon and I covered a lot of ground on the current state of electric, autonomous, shared and connected mobility. Usually I do the interviewing, but today you'll hear some of my views. Here we go.
1: Today, I'm joined by Vitaly Golem. Vitaly, thanks for coming on. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So I think uh, for the most part on Future Mobility Podcast, I'm talking to technical leaders in, in the mobility space of all type. And then uh, venture capital space, I've talked to a, a few people, but uh, I think you're you're the first from kind of this investment banking space, which I, I think is uh, not,
0: not one that I'm terribly familiar with. So I'm really looking forward to getting some of your perspectives. Thanks, Brandon. And uh, coincidentally, we named the season of, of our podcast, Accelerated the Future of Mobility. So- um, it it's very coincidental but I think we're on the same topic uh this season talking about this very exciting field of uh, mobility 5 trillion dollar industry going through once in a mo- many generation change as we see it as we as we live it right now so excited to speak with you. Yeah, yeah, it's fun- funny so the uh I I have laughed, not not the most
1: uh original <laughs> name that I came up for the podcast when I started it last year but I mean it, it's also it's it's very on topic though cuz it's it's hard if you if you pigeonhole yourself to I don't know, being electric or autonomous or whatever, it doesn't really capture this whole idea of where we're trying to improve the mobility ecosystem. We're trying to improve the way that people move from point A to point B in a safer, more sustainable way. And I think it re- really needs to be broad to do that. Um, so would you mind, and I know we kind of d- dove in here, but would you mind um, kind of introducing yourself a bit about what
0: you're working on? I think you have a really interesting background. So I don't know, a couple minutes, would you mind kind of sharing some of your background? Yeah, absolutely. So I call myself the Benjamin Button of investment banking because usually people start their careers, you know, right after business school in investment banking and spend, you know, a decade learning how all of this works and, and getting into deal making. Um, I did quite, quite the, quite the opposite. Uh, my education is actually in design of all things, and um, I started working as a as a teenager, always the youngest guy around in dot com days, uh, worked as a designer, and then. Uh, started a series of my own companies where I was, you know, the longest part of my career, you know, 15, 16 years, I was founder and CEO of several companies. Uh, sold the last one, joined Hewlett-Packard, uh, helped launch a corporate venture arm, HP, uh, HP Tech Ventures. Um, uh, Hewlett-Packard is the uh, the original startup, the original Silicon Valley startup, started in the 30s. Uh, lots of great history there. And then uh, gradually made my way over to investment banking, started my own firm and then merged with Drakestar, which is a, you know... Uh, one of the leading firms in mid-market, uh, where I specialize and lead the mobility category worldwide. We have about 100 bankers uh, across eight offices in the U.S. and Europe, and a couple of partner offices in other parts of the world. So, uh, pretty exciting space to be in. Um, I, I, I got into mobility because I love it, and i uh, always been kind of a car, motorcycle, airplane guy, and... Um, it's interesting. We, we're doing a lot of a lot of work in uh, electric, autonomous, connected, and shared areas of mobility, and these are all kind of the same theme these days. And
1: taking a, taking a step back to so the investment banking. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an engineer by uh, by training. I think a lot of the people who, who listen to the podcast are um, not, like I said, not not as familiar. I mean, venture capital I think is easy enough to understand, right? You have people who come and invest and fund um, startups who are trying to develop the, these technologies that are making a difference. What, what exactly is the role of Investment banker um, in this ecosystem.
0: Yeah, so I mean, I spend a lot of my time actually in early stage uh, startups before this, where really what it's all about is about a team and an idea, right? At these very early stages, and when angel investors come in or early stage VCs, they're really putting their you know money and their trust, you know, 80% into the team. They're they're seeing something that could work. They've been convinced and they like this team. When you get to later stages, when the business is running and you have, you know, millions in revenue, you know, much more mature organization, capital raises become much more formal. Or if the company wants to go and find themselves a buyer, they need to hire advisors. So investment bankers, mid-market, you know, like where we work, uh, we are service providers to companies. We are uh, their advisors. They they essentially retain us to help them raise, you know, a substantial capital raise, Uh, That may be much more complex than kind of early stages, Uh, sell the companies. Sometimes uh, large companies would hire us to actually help them buy startups. So that's kind of where we operate. Uh, I still do some angel investing myself. Um, Of course, I'm very passionate about the space and and know all the VCs in the community. But that's kind of where investment banking plays. Of course, investment bankers will also uh, take companies into the public market and, and actually handle their IPOs. That's probably what most people pretty aware of. Um, these days, especially with mobility, we're actually advisors for companies that are looking to be acquired or merge with a SPAC and, and go public that way. And that's been obviously very relevant for the mobility category for the last year or so.
1: Yeah. And what, what what are the key characteristics or what are the things that make you make someone in your team, whatever, make you successful in this role that you're playing, trying to um, evaluate and put, put together deals and, and serve one side or
0: the other? Yeah, I mean, what you want with your investment bankers, your advisors, you want that experience. In my case, uh, again, I'm, I'm a little bit different than a typical investment banker because there it's usually, you know, very heavy emphasis on the financial aspect of it, whereas most of my career I spent as an operator. So uh, I approach it strategically. I certainly have all the all the financial components, but my approach is a little bit different where um, kind of understanding the company, strategically advising the company, and uh, speaking to board members as peers, because I've I've ran companies for so long that I know the ins and outs, and I've seen a lot of these situations. So, uh, as a firm, DrakeStar, what we pride ourselves on is being really sector specific. So we have sector specific expert teams that have the rolodex, are constantly talking to investors and buyers in their category. They know all of the numbers, they know all of the trends, they can speak to the technology on a very deep level. So that's how how we approach it. We're not generalists. We all kind of specialize in specific uh, technology categories.
1: Really interesting. And so the, and I I haven't played directly in the startup space for sure, so I'm I'm speaking as kind of an outsider for sure. But uh, thinking of, my my understanding is the kind of early stage seed, you're making decisions based on kind of the the potential and the idea and also the founding team, whether you you think that this team and this idea can come to fruition, there's a real market for it and they can kind of fight through the challenges and come out on the other side and there's a fighting chance for them to, to grow. I have to imagine the criteria that you're evaluating for success later in later stage when you have these more bigger players, more complex deals, more capital moving around are, are different. Uh, so what are, what are some of the key factors that you're evaluating?
0: Yeah, I mean, as a general rule of thumb, you know, as, as the companies get uh, more mature and, and drive revenue, et cetera, they certainly have, uh, there's a lot more confidence that it will work out, right? At the very early stages when it's, you know, a team, an idea and their dog, You know, it's a 98% chance that it's not going to go anywhere. But as you make progress, as you get traction, as you get customers, as you get into multiple millions of dollars worth of revenue, at that point, you really start to dial it in and understand your business and your unit economics. So on the one hand, you're kind of de-risking it. But on the other hand, you need to put progressively bigger amounts of capital to keep growing. And the growth is not, you know, a thousand percent anymore, but, you know, it's going to be a little bit more incremental than that. So less risk, uh, bigger cap amounts of capital, uh, but uh, kind of smaller percentage returns. That's what's expected, and that's kind of the venture model, right? As you de-risk, you put you put progressively bigger bets on the table. Of course, there's companies that fail at a later stage, or there's companies that go public and then go bankrupt. And um, you know, it's worth saying with SPACs, uh, companies, a lot of the companies that are going public via SPACs are a lot younger than the companies that we've been used to since Sox compliance came in after Enron era, you know, almost 20 years ago. Um, this whole generation of investors kind of considers all public companies stable and kind of the same. But these are younger companies that, you know, some of them will not get there. Some of them will fail uh, because they are still, in some cases, they were pre-revenue. They just need to raise a lot of money to build a factory, to start delivering products in two, three years down the road. Yeah, I'd be curious to get your thought
1: on on this spec phenomenon, maybe even... Um... The, the ecosystem over, overall. So I think of, I don't know, really with, with the pandemic started, it seems like kind of this, this Robin Hood phase, and it's not just Robin Hood, but it's kind of the, the there's more retail investing going on. And then also, uh, and at the same time, there's more of these companies, like you said, early, earlier stage being available for public investment. And there's a, to some extent, I, I think a craze or frenzy around certain of these terms. I mean, if someone has electric or autonomous or something like that, or machine learning, AI, a few of these, Key thing, especially people who aren't really in the industry, get pretty excited about kind of the, the next or hydrogen right now um, about these companies, you know, going to the moon or whatever you want to say. How do
0: you think? How do you think about this? Uh, trying to navigate this situation. I, I'm I'm assuming you're certainly familiar with the Gartner hype cycle. Your audience might might be or might not be, but there's always a lot of hype when new technologies kind of cross the the chasm and and get known. There's a lot of excitement, a lot of hype, a lot of fear of missing out. Where you have a lot of people, you know, jump on it, uh, but almost always there's a trough of disillusionment when it doesn't work out. When one thing, when people realize that it's going to take a lot longer for this to become something tangible and, and for it to be a business. Um, so certainly there, there are a lot of hypey, keywordy type of things that are out there that have been out there, uh, but you will find that you know investors that are that are managing large large pools of capital, they are pretty sophisticated in the way they approach this, and they're not just looking at the hype you know uh where you know retail investors might be driven by that but the investors the institutional investors that are controlling uh large capital and they're investing in the ipos they're certainly not that susceptible to the hype uh they are looking at the economics of the business they're at the same time trying to measure the excitement in the public markets because the retail investors are going to be the ones you know essentially buying that stock in the public market so there is that piece where you have to create kind of a marketing story and and get interest and get a lot of news coverage and be consistent with it and kind of keep the stock price up. But at a certain point, you know, we're looking at fundamentals. We're looking at, you know, revenue. We're looking at revenue multiples compared to the peers of the company. All these things are the biggest factor there where you want to be able to, um, to really handicap it and, and have some downside protection. You know, it's been interesting to watch because there's the peak of the SPAC hype was, you know, uh, end of Q1, beginning of Q2. Uh, this year, and then summer was really, really quiet. And now we're seeing the market really kind of normalize to more sustainable pace of number of deals. You know, because they, these SPACs need to find billion-dollar companies, um, billion-dollar plus value companies that that they're acquiring to bring to the public market. There's not an infinite amount of these companies, and it takes a while for a company to get to that, si- that size and, and that valuation. So, it's it's really it's really interesting. And you know, if it's retail investors, if you're investing your own money. I'm not giving you investment advice. Uh, I can't do that as an investment banker, you know, not knowing you. Uh, but, you know, my my only advice is do your research and understand the fundamentals of the company. There's one thing where you get momentum and you have, you know, the the Reddit effect and things out there that drive stock price. But if you're not day trading and, and kind of doing that whole bit, if you're looking to to get into great companies and hold them for a long time, you really need to understand the market that they're playing in, their competitors, you know the valuations the fundamentals of that business to understand and kind of make a judgment if if they're going to have a future or not yeah and, and this gets outside of my area of expertise for sure but some,
1: something that you know human psychology is is fascinating to me and i think the uh, the markets and especially the real retail market or investors in the market it's it's really interesting to see and it's it's also i don't know it's it's almost set up so that uh, not intentionally, but the way the market works, you're going to end up with more confidence than you deserve because you make a, a foolish bet and then hype comes on the back end and you happen to time it right. And then you're like, oh, I'm smarter than everyone who's in, is spending their entire life and their job trying to make these types of, uh, trying to price the market and figure out where there's arbitrage to be taken advantage of. And
0: uh, I mean, it's really easy to feel like a genius if your entire investment experience is the market going up and to the right but you know if you zoom out the market is always cyclical you can never predict the cycles and uh, ultimately what will uh, prevent you from from losing it all when you when the market does turn and it will turn at some point it has to uh, is having diversification um that's 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 told to everybody is to make sure that you don't have all your eggs in in one or two baskets and and really looking at fundamentals looking at companies that will survive i mean one thing that that is, you know, my approach um, with my personal investing is looking at companies that have, you know, uncontrolled monopolies. And I won't name any names. I don't want to recommend any specific companies. Uh, but, you know, that's always a factor. It's like, okay, if the market turns, if the economy turns, who will absorb, you know, the strength is going to be, is be, is going, to be going to the leaders. And there's going to be consolidation always to the leaders. So that's one area that I personally like to hunt is uh, it's, I'm looking at companies that really have a monopoly in a particular category or industry yeah let's spend some time talking about kind of your uh, your specific
1: focus here of the mobile and again not not investment invites whatever whatever we're talking about here but so talking about the uh, the mobility sector so what uh what's a trend that, that you are optimistic about that you think that the fundamentals are in line there com- there's you know an industry that's
0: growing and can, will continue to grow. You know, um, I was just uh, I just had Mate Remats on my uh, on one of my episodes on the podcast, and uh, you know, he's a friend, and uh, I met him back in 2012 when there was eight crazy kids that started this company in Croatia in a garage to build an electric hypercar, and um, around 2015, I got involved directly with them to help them raise you know the first real big uh, round. And we went through a, quite a big struggle because EVs at that point were not really inevitable. It was still, you still had to convince investors that EVs are something interesting and will change the market. So, you know, something that we've noticed uh, and, and Mate has certainly is that uh, EVs are now, you know, foregone conclusion, right? That, that's a no-brainer. Everybody understands all the big OEMs, all the investors, everybody understands that we're going EV. Um, so that's a no-brainer uh, area. Autonomy—I've um, mentioned our reports that we publish in, in things that I've put out there uh, for the past few years. Autonomy is much further away than than some people or some companies will uh, will want you to believe, um, because they have you know a horse in the race. Uh, and again, I won't mention any names, but um, autonomy—you know—we're still a you know a, an order of magnitude or a scientific breakthrough away from real autonomy, real, real level four, level five. You know, no steering wheel, door to door navigation under any conditions type of autonomy. Uh, We will see autonomy in specialized areas. We already do see that in mining, in off-road, kind of more commercial applications uh, where you have a controlled environment and you can kind of control most of the factors. Uh, You will see it more in public transportation. And then you'll see specialized companies out there that are doing uh, kind of the taxi bit. But again, it's kind of it's limited to a very specific use case in each in, in each point. Uh, so autonomy, I think is still, you know, probably realistically, probably four or five years away from anything that, that goes beyond kind of level 2.9, which is where we are now on the roads, which is really, uh, it's really assistive technology, right? It's ADIS. It's not autonomous, no matter what, whoever calls it, it's not real autonomy because you cannot, you know, read a book or take a nap while it's driving you around, um, uh, there are a lot of other elements, though, they connected and shared uh, that are related, right? So when we do, as we get closer to autonomy, car ownership will change, uh, insurance will change. There'll be so many changes in all these kind of second order effects. Uh, we're going to have smart cities, a concept of smart cities connected things to, uh, to transportation. That's a major category, right? Transportation really is the biggest industry in the world if you look at passenger, commercial, mass transits, uh, freight, etc., cetera, all of these, all these things are changing. All of these things are kind of the physical and digital worlds are merging where we have all this control. We have a, a client that's, that's, that's digitizing, you know, cross border uh, trade, right? They're completely digitizing the whole path with APIs integrating into everything. So there's a lot of really exciting things happening in transportation as a whole. It's not just about, you know, sexy electric vehicles on the road, or autonomy, whether it's real autonomy or not, there are a lot of really interesting things happening around it. And it's never been like this, you know, it, 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 it's really, it's really an exciting market to be, you know, in and the last time something like this happened was probably at the introduction of commercial flight, right in the 30s. So it's a pretty exciting time to be here. I'm really excited to share something a long time in the making with you. My first online course. Over the years, I've trained thousands of founders through my book, Accelerated Startup, and my infamous Pitching Like a Boss workshops and keynotes. Like I've done for thousands of founders, I will teach you how to pitch like a boss. And for the first time ever, I will be doing it in a cohort-based online course. This is the world's most comprehensive and intensive course for entrepreneurs and future founders on pitching. It will help you craft the perfect pitch for investors and customers. It will also help you master public speaking, get funded, communicate your vision to grow your team and dramatically improve sales of any product. Check out golem.net slash pitching. That's G-O-L-O-M-B dot net slash pitching for more information. See you there.
1: Yeah, in a few areas, I'm going to want to dig a little deeper into. So, so, one, uh, you mentioned kind of the, the state or your thought on where autonomous vehicles stand. I, I hadn't heard uh, level two point nine, but I think that's a that, that's a good way to put it. Because yeah, the definition of level three driving is that someone is actually it's a, the car drives itself, which does not exist with the uh, the current highway pilots that we have. Maybe for some um, taxi type situations in closed, closed areas. But um, so actually, I just had, had the the. Uh, The pleasure. I know kind of a sobering discussion with uh, Sterling Anderson, who's the chief product officer at Aurora. So he launched the autopilot and he so the podcast that'll come out in uh, late October and the future mobility. Um, He was chief product officer at Aurora since 2017. He launched autopilot for Tesla before that. And even now, the way he talks about autonomous vehicles is not that they're here. That's it's it's what you're saying. They're we're we're years away from them getting their first. And I, I think they have a reasonable claim that they're if if not exactly as far but pr- pretty competitive with the people in the market so I think uh, certainly there there's a lot of hype about autonomous vehicles but it's it's worthwhile to think about where I, where this actually is and the people who are
0: working on the technology what the what they say about it I guess yeah I'm I'm in touch regularly with a number of folks that are very well known in in autonomy and they were early early re- leaders you know some of the first people to get into this you know 15 years ago when all of this really got started. Um, and unanimously, everybody understands and knows that we're still pretty far away. You know, it's it's not and you know to kind of dig into it a little bit. It's not really about the sensors, right? Um, you know, there's this whole debate between uh, camera only or camera and lidar sensor array, um, sensor fusion, all these things. Of course, you want more data. That's always going to help. Uh, but the argument is that you know humans only have two cameras, and these cameras are not that great. But what we also have is 10 million years of evolution between those two cameras that help us make a decision. And really, the, the problem with, with autonomy right now is not really sensing the, the physical world around you in real time. That's pretty much solved. You know, if you want an expensive sensor array on the vehicle, that's pretty much done. The question is, how do we predict what that next car, what the car in front of us is going to do next? And that's really something that um, no matter how many miles with current technology that you do, it's, for some reason, it's very difficult to teach a computer how to do that. Whereas humans have this intuition, understanding, okay, that car is about to pull out or what have you and, and get in front of me. So that human factor is what we're trying to solve. It's really the sensing, all of that is done. And the computers are obviously much faster and much more predictive, predictable kind of computational Machines than our than our you know our meat brains, um, but that that little piece of predicting what's going to happen next—that's really the problem that's that's being you know uh, attempted to be solved right now.
1: Yeah, and that, two two examples I like to give. So these are you know commonplace critical examples while you're driving. But one is pedestrian walking in front of you. So there's the amount of nonverbal communication that goes goes on, whether it's just reading or if it's a two-way communication where you're making eye contact and somehow indicating who's moving when and you're reading how their momentum's going all that type of stuff uh, very challenging for, a, for for an autonomous vehicle to be programmed in or for it to learn and then similarly i, I can't tell you, you know, how many times you're, you're driving in a multi-lane highway and like you just know the car that's sped up to you is going to cut up, cut over in front of you and you, you you can predict when it's going to change lanes and i've, I've thought about it a few times while i'm driving yeah there, there's some some stuff that you could put together like you know speed and Distance between the car in front of you and how how much car there, or distance there is to the car in front of the vehicle that you think is going to cut you off, but the, I can't imagine how you could reasonably kind of program that into an algorithm that's predictable to the level that we our intuition is able to piece all this data together and make these predictions.
0: Yeah, I think you hit it right on the head. It's it's the it's the body language. It's that nonverbal communication with a pedestrian, but it's also kind of transforms into this nonverbal communication of you watching a car do certain things on the road. And, and trying to predict what the driver is going to do next. So it kind of transfers. It's, it's really interesting. Uh, and it's it's kind of in the realm of, uh, you know, it's the opposite of the, uh, you know, the software developers type of personality is the, the skill set is really in the liberal arts and the psychology of understanding human behavior. Um, that's really kind of the merge. And, and maybe that's the missing piece. Maybe that's something that uh, we need more of in this science. Yeah. And then
1: let's talk a bit about um, electrification. So I, I think a, a couple of places I'd like to dig deep here. So the one you mentioned electrification is inevitable, as you, as you said, which maybe I want to talk about uh, that, that's, that statement a little bit. But but assuming assuming it is, I don't think it's inevitable that everyone who enters the space of electrification is going to succeed. So if you look at the amount of companies right now that are developing, whether it's electric pickup trucks or last mile vehicles or even you know OEMs springing up there it seems like there's some sort of consolidation that's going to need to take place over the next few years to to get to some happy uh kind of medium after all of this is said and done how are you kind of thinking about this ecosystem and trying to figure out I was assuming that you agree that there's um, some kind of consolidation that's going to come but how do you think about who might be the winners in this space
0: Well, I mean, we don't have to look far, right? We always look at history to see what the future is going to look like. At the beginning of the 20th century, there were over 200 uh, American-based auto manufacturers when cars first came out, right? The horseless carriages. There are over 200. And then we ended, you know, with what, three (laughs) in the century? So uh, there will certainly be consolidation. And uh, there are some companies, again, I won't mention names, but that, that are obviously struggling. The news is out there. Um, and they will be kind of chopped up for parts and whatever intellectual property that they had or assets, whatever will, will merge in. There are other companies that are doing really, really a great job. New companies that are that are building the brand, building the following. Uh, they're doing all those pieces right. It's not enough just to build a car. You you really need to build a brand, and and people have this emotional connection with their cars. So that piece is really, really important part. Um, you can look at the struggle that. You know um korean brands for example had and how long it took them to get to kind of break through into the u.s market they were underpricing their vehicles you know compared to the german brands that were established in luxury sector for example by 20 30 percent just to get the sell through and they were never able to catch up um it, you know building that brand building the emotional connection making that you know building that desire in your customer to be obsessed with your car you know the bmw people the porsche people you know, those people are, they love the brand, the Ferrari people, right? That's, that's probably the best example. They are, um, they are completely in love with the brand and the lifestyle and what it represents for them. So that's so that social emotional component is very important. And and a lot of the companies just, they just don't have the bandwidth. They're so busy building the tech and, and struggling to raise money and building a factory and getting to production and all those things that they are not able to invest as much as needed into the brand, and that's that's a good sign you know that's a big red flag that they're gonna be susceptible to getting taken out because it's a business that is very low margin where you're counting you know pennies and nickels on a build where you're trying to shave costs and you're in a very low margin business so if you don't have the brand, you're gonna have to try to you know you you're gonna have to be the cheap the cheap company right where people will buy it because it's a cheaper alternative with some of the same features. And you're just not you're just gonna hemorrhage money, so it's inevitable um, that some of these a lot of these new companies are not gonna survive. And do you think there's there's room to carve out a, a niche, or is this a short term?
1: So I, I won't name name this, but someone who's appeared on the podcast. So so very clearly, I mean, even in the name, going after last mile electric solutions, and they're uh, they you know, it, it makes sense intuitively, right? So they're, they're not, they don't necessarily need to be the, the high scale. They don't need to market to um, private use. People who are buying private use, it's clearly a B2B market. It's ROI, total cost of ownership, driven decisions. Uh, it, yeah, it, it seems like there's a market, at least in the short term, in, in my own mind, but I have a hard time envisioning kind of how this plays out long term without, you know, one of the big players coming in and, and playing um, in either making an acquisition or a direct competition or something like that. Is that... Is that something that you, how, how are you thinking about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about commercial vehicles, certainly the calc, you know the calculus is different. The buyers will will buy that vehicle because they're looking for some kind of cost or feature advantage, um, and the proof is in the pudding, right? So if I'm if I'm looking at that company as a potential investor um, or buyer, I want to see the contracts. I want to see what kind of traction they have and and kind of those proof points. So it, it definitely changes the calculus. Um, I mean, the other factor is that as we get closer to autonomy, people won't need as many cars, right? Our cars, you know, we, everybody knows they're they're just standing around for ninety-five percent of the time. Um, you know, when you're living in a city, I mean, you look at San Francisco, New York. Most people don't own cars because it's very expensive. You can just it's it, it, oh, there's Siri talking, but um, uh, there's there's a it's very expensive to to own a car in a city with the parking, with insurance, with everything else. And you're pretty close to most things, so it's actually you know half the price to just Uber around all the time, and you have the convenience. When we're looking at autonomous vehicles, we're going to see more of that model where a vehicle will be available to you and it'll be much cheaper. Let's say it'll be, I don't know, 30 to 50% of the current Uber cost because you don't have the driver cost. Um, you know it, 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 will be, it will be fewer vehicles sold. So I think we've probably already passed peak uh, passenger vehicle sales at some point. So not only are, do we have a bunch of new competitors on the scene, we have the the OEMs, you know, trying to cycle out their, you know, the big OEMs, established guys, cycling out their internal combustion inventory as they bring new electric vehicles to market. I mean, one other thing that uh, Stefan Kraus pointed out, uh, who's uh former CEO of Canoe, former CFO of BMW, he's very bullish on on EVs because there's a financial component too. Like, right? for example, BMW, whatever they lease out now, which is 80% of the vehicles that they sell are on a lease, they're gonna come back in three years. And in three years, the, the value of those internal combustion vehicles is gonna be much lower than the previous cycle, right? Because at that point, we're gonna be even more and more people are looking at at EVs and the market for internal combustion is gonna keep shrinking. But as we're talking about autonomy, that market will shrink substantially. And we're gonna be looking at, you know, uh, cars being something for fun, right? So there'll be a hypercar market and it'll probably grow. Uh, sports car market, but general vehicles, you'll probably have fewer of those selling. How, how are you thinking about these uh, companies
1: that are kind of taking more of a systems approach? So like m- mobility as a service kind of as, as a broad topic where, yeah, just somewhat it's it's the shared automated route. But uh, I, I guess to frame the question, so from a sustainability perspective, which is, I guess I, I try to take it, take that approach from the engineering, what's, what's the most sustainable way to move around? I, I think of, you know, like the grocery store a quarter mile for me. The most sustainable way isn't for me to get in a conventional or a hybrid or a battery electric vehicle. It's for me to walk or take a bike or to, to potentially ride share or public transportation or like getting downtown for me, like private private use vehicle, kind of regardless whether it's an electric vehicle or not, it's probably not the most sustainable way for me to, to move around. So from from that perspective, I I'm I ho- I'm hopeful that some of some of these uh public I guess they're, they're not necessarily public in, infrastructure, but some of these uh, mobility as a service are improved ways of kind of approaching the system of how to move people around in a sustainable ma- manner. I hope that they take off. It's also seems intre- incredibly kind of complicated to change the way, because I mean, we have an ingrained culture of, yeah, I have two vehicles. I'm a, I have a you know, me and my wife have, have a vehicle. We, we're used to moving around in a certain way. So how do you think about this overall trend and whether it's it's actually going to catch on and how it's going to catch on?
0: Well, we have to look at, first of all, uh, other parts of the world besides U.S., right? U.S. is somewhat special because with the invention of the vehicle and cheap gas, you know, many years ago and all the highways that were built in the 50s and 60s, this allowed for this kind of urban sprawl. And if you're in the suburbs like I am, you know, 30 minutes south of San Francisco on a hill... Um, I don't have public transportation here, so it's a question of, okay, do I take my motorcycle? Do I take my car whenever I need to go somewhere, whenever the kids need to go somewhere, et cetera? Um, so there's that. But when you're talking about living in the cities, uh, you have a lot more options now. Micromobility kind of popped up in the last few years, electric scooters, electric bikes that uh, at once make it you know somewhat easy, but also solve the problem of traffic and and kind of instant availability and a cheap vehicle that doesn't need insurance and all these things. So, you know, I don't think we're going to change the sociology of people, you know, if they live, you know, out somewhere far from the city, it's not practical for everybody to walk, you know, spend half their day, we're kind of regressing kind of to a different to a lower form of civilization at that point. So I don't think people are going to make that choice. But if you give them the choice of public transportation, and they see the economics of it, and they live in some kind of density in a city, uh, you're going to you're going to have a lot more options. Now, if you look at environmental impact. Um, You know, electric vehicles have a higher environmental impact at construction of the vehicle because you have all these metals that are being mined for the batteries. Uh, Maybe that'll change as we go into different battery chemistries in the future. That's also a few years away for looking at, you know, ceramic batteries, solid state lithium ion, etc. But um, for now, you know, you have an environmental impact to build a car. But that environmental impact almost completely stops after the car is delivered, because then you're charging from the grid. And increasingly we're seeing that the grid is going to be uh, more from sustainable sources, right? There's a proposal now to cover both coasts of the U S with offshore wind production, which will, will be big enough to cover, for example, the needs of 10 million households. That's a great start. We have other clean forms. So in the next you know few decades, we're going to catch up and uh, we're going to have a lot more sustainable sources of electricity, you know, but um, and then the other factor, too, that people bring up with internal combustion vehicles, I mean, one thing that kind of puts everything dead in its tracks, even if we're getting electricity from coal, is that the electric engine is at least 90% efficient, right? It uses 90% of the energy for its operations, whereas internal combustion engine is something like 20, 25%. So the, the the kind of the conversation stops there. Just on that, you know, you have a four times more efficient uh, engine in a vehicle. So... Um, but you know, ultimately, if, if we're talking about environmental impact, the answer is something about having fewer vehicles. That, that's unavoidable, right? Ultimately, and having different options and having better public transport, that's really the best way to solve this. When companies start to catch fire and blitz scale and look for capital to fuel that growth or look to find the right exit strategy, they often seek the counsel of investment bankers. At Drakestar Partners, we work with some of the leading companies in global tech on capital raises, M&A, corporate carve-outs, SPACs, and much more. And we're pretty good at it. Our team of over 100 technology sector experts across 9 offices in 6 countries is comprised of not only career bankers, but experienced executive venture investors, and technologists. Drakestar Partners is the number one ranked and fastest-growing mid-market investment bank across U.S. and Europe. While I focus on mobility and energy transition sector, along with all things Silicon Valley, my partners from the Pacific to the Atlantic and around the world lead in software, media, communications, and everything in between. Learn more about us at drakestar.com.
1: Yeah, and I guess quick, quick anecdote. So I mentioned I, I was. Uh... I am, you know, two, uh, two vehicle family actually for the past year. I haven't been, I, we, we, we've tried the kind of one vehicle and then make it worked with, um, ride share, or ride hail or whatever. And, and ultimately just, at least in my, my area in Metro Detroit, my wife goes to work at six thirty AM and literally cannot get an Uber or a Lyft to, to, to get her to. So like, yeah, just that one kind of small, seemingly small, um, factor is enough that requires us to get a second vehicle which and i'm sure there's plenty of other examples so just to say it's, it's a complex thing and we're gonna have to address the entire ecosystem for it to really take on take take over at scale um uh,
0: yeah i mean i was gonna ask uh, you know there, there's another element we can add to this is uh, for example hyperloop tt has been a long time client of mine as well that we've been advising um and they're the first company that was uh, that was put together to commercialize the concept of hyperloop now, with something like that, you know people don't realize that this is only a few years away at this point. Uh, it's been under development for the last seven um, and the technology is pretty much there um, but building that you know is obviously a big infrastructure project now the The importance of that is that you have something that will be much faster uh city center to city center right when we're talking about kind of middle distances than than taking a regional flight so for example, right now, for me to go from San Francisco to l a If I fly, it's a short flight, it's under an hour, but for me to get to the airport, you know, let's say an hour early, then on the other side, you know, you're looking at about three hours. But what you're talking about with something like a Hyperloop, you're talking about 30, 40 minutes, city center San Francisco to city center in L.A. uh, versus, you know, these, these outskirts of the airport, right? Realistically, a trip from San Francisco to L.A., from door to door is probably about four or five hours when you take into account the traffic on both sides and all these things um and you're talking bring that down to thirty minutes so what that'll open up is the ability for people to really live you know kind of really urban sprawl, really get out of the city centers and and get spread out and have a lot more room um if they desire to be to be out there, but they can still participate and get into the city very quickly. So that's gonna be very interesting um ultimately you know uber's that's a great you know gap measure where you have these taxis uh it's measured that it's actually increased traffic because you have a lot of cars just driving around uh waiting for passengers at this point as well so you have a lot more conde- um um a lot more um traffic in cities like san francisco it's been measured uh, but what I'm talking about more is, is actual real true public transport where you have, you know, electric trains, either surface or underground, you know, imagine New York without the subway or Paris without the subway. It's impossible. Yeah. And I, I like
1: to join anyone who spent time in, in Europe and especially, you know, Amsterdam It, you know, I, I loved for the, whatever, the few days to week that I was there being able to take a bike around and I could even go take a bike to a train station and jump on the train and go anywhere. But Um, Which, you know, it feels great. You get an exercise. It's clean, sustainable. It's a lot of people can move on these bike paths compared to on public roads. But it's all kind of a key enabler in this equation is what you're talking about here. And it's the, the point to point ability to move between cities without needing to get into a personal vehicle.
0: Yeah. I mean, the other argument is that there are going to be a lot more people working from home. I think in, in, when we're talking about knowledge workers, that's a possibility. Um, you know, my wife and I were, we're both working from home. So now, you know, we're kidding with a real estate, uh, agent, a friend of ours that, you know, now you're going to market homes with three bedrooms and two home offices. Um, so there will be that effect in certain places, but I think, um, as we get through into, you know, deep into 2022 and, and the world comes back more and more to normal, you, you're still going to want that connection. You're still going to, you know most of that's still going to be back. Uh, a lot of the business international travel will, will never be the same, right? We're not going to need to get on a plane, just to have a meeting. I think everybody's kind of okay with that now. Uh, but, um, you yeah, know, we'll get there. We'll get back to the same level of, uh, of travel um, for one, one way or another in probably the next five to
1: eight years. Yeah, and there's a bunch of interesting factors here and all these kind of cross-related variables. But, I mean, even the business travel something something. And I just a couple of days ago, I was reading an interesting article with someone kind of sharing an opinion that, yeah maybe business travel re, uh, levels get close to if not the same as they were before but it's it's for different very different reasons so what we're doing right now you know in the past we would have to probably be in person or like initial customer calls and stuff you know i'd jump on a i'd jump on a plane i've gone to texas i've gone you know around around the country just to say hey i'm gonna meet you for a half hour in person it, it feels like that stuff's not gonna happen because it, it doesn't need to but you know m- making a whatever the, the size de- I i don't know i guess you're making huge deals on are, are you doing this stuff virtually or is there still an element for you
0: at, at, on the back end where you need to still break bread with people and stuff like that it, it is important you know oftentimes when we hold a management meeting right when we're deep into a process of a company is getting acquired you know the acquirer if it's a private equity or strategic you know they need to sit down and look each other in the eye they need to have a meal together and start building that uh, that connection uh, but a lot of the, I'd say most of the work before that kind of leads up to that is being done virtually and everybody's okay with it because everybody's so much more productive. Um, maybe as a as a telling sign, we now have the busiest uh, year of M&A in over 40 years, right, uh, in, in 2021, uh, because everybody's so productive, because there's so much deal making, because we're able to, you know, I can hop on on and off four different deals in a day four or five different deals, different calls, instead of being on a plane and, and pushing things out, you know, weeks uh, out into the future as we would have done in the past. Yeah. And I, I
1: mean, I, I've alluded to, but I'm in, I'm in business development as my kind of day job on uh, outside the podcast. And, you know, it's even my local customers here, it used to be close to half a day for even if it's a half hour drive, cause you got to get there early, get checked into the system, walk through and have these meetings and now it's, it's half hour in and out and you're on, onto the next thing, which is. Is certainly more effective when it's it's used in the right situations. So, I guess quick uh, quick quick left turn for you. Some something that I like to ask all my guests. Guests. So you've had you know a really interesting um, career throughout this entire ecosystem, and um, I, I'm curious to see how you answer this. But what's what's a favorite book or books of yours? So something that you've read through the years, whether it's personal, professional, and any part doesn't need to be related to mobility business necessarily, but. What's something or a few books that you've read that have really impacted you that you might recommend?
0: Well, you hit my favorite subject. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I published a book uh, about four years ago, five years ago now, uh, called Accelerated Startup. And that was based on my experience as a you know, early stage uh, venture backed entrepreneur for many, many years. And all of the, um, all of the experience that I accumulated and, and kind of going around the world as a keynote speaker and meeting people with different accents, but the same problems. And, and that's something that I put out there. It's called Accelerated Startup. Um, of course, um, I, I read uh, a lot, a lot of books. And uh, it's hard to actually recommend, you know, when you're in the midst of it. I read about a book a week um, at this point. And um, <laughs> so, you know, it depends on the topic. But yeah, I mean, it, it depends on the topic. But something that I recommend that's probably on, on target, you know, that, that's a little bit, it's a little bit, uh, it's, it's a tough book to get through. It's a very high level, but it's it's Nick Bostrom's super And what he talks about there is really, really gets down to nitty gritty um, and really opens up the concept of artificial intelligence, what it will mean to us, how it might take off. It could be a fast takeoff or a slow takeoff or a gradual takeoff. And then projecting that billions of years into the future when human civilization is long gone, what this artificial intelligence could do. Um, there was also a kind of a related book that was I coincidentally read about the same time or right after, uh, which was ivy lobes uh, he 's a professor in at harvard uh, he 's talking about I forget the name now, but he was talking about you know a few years ago we had a uh, a strange thing fly through our through our um, solar system. And he pretends that that's, uh, that's probably rem- remnants of artificial intelligence from many millions or billions of years ago, from a different civilization that is kind of sending out a probe into into the into the universe. So really interesting things like that. Um, you know, there there are other other things that I like reading that are a little bit uh, more down to earth. <laughs> Literally, um, there's a great book that I just finished called The Rosie Project, and it's about uh, it's just a great book written by an Australian author about. Uh, a professor um, uh, that is on the autism spectrum and how he perceives the world and relationships. Uh, really, really great little book. Uh, I have a son with autism, so for me, that's that's really interesting as well. So I, I could probably recommend, you know, dozens and dozens of great books, but I'll, I'll kind of pause there. Maybe...
1: So a few a few questions. One, this uh, maintaining the, the the pace of reading. So I've, I found him. So I, I part of the reason I ask every guest. I, I love reading. I I get a ton out of it and uh, pretty consistent through through the years. But I've also found that uh, I go through these stages where, like when when I'm like for example, when I was first out of college and trying to get into the business world, I'm trying to understand business development and how like I, I was rapid pace kind of reading as much as I can and trying to apply these different principles for uh um, picking up communication skills understanding again how yeah how, how business works how deals are made all all that type of stuff and then i, I slacked off a little bit because i got into more of a hey, I feel like I, i'm kind of applying this stuff and it's revisiting the same and kind of less um opening the the blinders to new information but then i you know change roles and i, I go through these cycles o- over time do you, do you find any something similar or do you find that you you really get a ton of, it, of uh, benefit from kind of plowing through and just continually getting this input of, of really interesting thoughts and, and ideas?
0: Yeah. I mean, I used to read all, almost entirely nonfiction. I would say entirely nonfiction. And for me, it was like, you know, it was kind of this productivity thing that I saw myself like, okay, I don't want to waste any time. I want to just read and, and kind of absorb this information and, and put it in my brain and, and use it, put it to practice. But at a certain point, you know, uh, that becomes, it, it it it's difficult to to have, you know, you have kind of it starts fading off, and and you read the same stuff just put different ways for a lot of yeah. Time. You're not you're gonna kind of oversaturate your brain. So now these days, uh, I actually learn probably most from biographies, uh, right? Um, I read uh, Barack Obama's uh, first uh, first um, first part of his biography, which goes through his first term. And uh, the book is 700 something pages, um, but really really interesting um michelle obama's biography which is kind of an, an interesting counterpoint i about the same time um and to see kind of her perspective on the same events uh and things and um you know so i probably read maybe still 70 80 percent fiction uh, non and then maybe 10 15 percent more of uh biographies and then the rest is probably fiction Uh, But the fiction I will I will kind of read for a specific purpose, and it's really you know it's really meaty, it's it's really interesting. And the fiction books tend to give you a different perspective more than anything, more than just like just raw data and raw information. Uh, But um, when I do read, I like to read kind of in groups, like books in groups, as you know, Michelle Obama, Barack Obama's book, get a couple of different perspectives. Uh, Reading um, you know Dark Money, for example, which is a great book on kind of how the U.S. system really works in politics and kind of the dark money that's behind the scenes and lobbying a lot of these uh, crazy concepts and where all that came from. And at the same time, I read The Bitcoin Standard, which is a very libertarian book and kind of, you know, talking about, you know, here's what we need to do, which is, you know, uh, being born in a communist country. Libertarianism is is pretty funny to me as well, because it's just as unrealistic as communism because it's not taking into account human nature right and how people actually behave uh, that's a whole different story whole different podcast but um you know reading those those books in pairs or in kind of in kind of uh, blocks will give you a deeper perspective a deeper understanding and that's how i found kind of where i want to drill down on a particular area and and kind of go deep but my other trick is that you know obviously you can imagine with our our industry working 12 hours a day usually 6 7 days a week um, I don't have a lot of time. So a lot of these books I'll do in audiobook format. And when I'm in the gym or driving somewhere or something like that, I will have I will have that hour or two a day where I can listen to uh instead of podcasts, a lot of times I'll read uh you know, do the audio books for kind of longer form um information gathering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's in, it's interesting, and as you were talking, I think maybe you helped uh,
1: connect some some dots in my own head about my own pattern. So, I, yeah, I, m- I mentioned so I, I started really this. I, I hate the term self help, but I, I think that that was or self improvement or whatever. What business books, kind of really practical um, type stuff. But I've over the last couple of years kind of sh- shifted to psychology, theology, like kind of the, the question of like a, a, how to live, and even that going from kind of the the super. I th- uh, the, by analogy, I don't think this is perfect, but the, the comparing the nonfiction fiction, as, as you're saying, of like the, the Stoic or um, Aristotle, Plato type kind of very clear cut and dry kind of he, here's what to do. And then comparing that with like reading the, like, the Bible or something like that, which is similar, but also veiled in story, which in, in some ways helps to add so much complexity and depth, which, yeah, I, I guess you, you maybe uh, just saying that inspired me to get more into the biographies because I've been I've heard, you know, you hear a lot of people who are in leadership positions or uh and such that really get into biographies,
0: but somehow I haven't uh haven't gone that route so far yet. No, and it's great. There are a lot of business biographies. Um uh you have Michael Eisner's book, uh he was uh, CEO of um, of Disney. Right. Uh it's a great one, kind of his his career, his continuum, how the a lot of these things happened. You know, if you're talking about kind of uh, civilization, my recommendation is always *Sapiens* first, um, then uh, Jared Diamond's *Guns, Germs, and Steel* to see how you know Europeans conquered, uh, conquered uh, a lot of lands and how all of that came together, and then Homodeus Deus* after that. Um, so, kind of uh, Harari on, on, as bookends, and Harari was inspired by Jared Diamond. Um, Guns, Germs, and Steel. For those that don't know, is 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 a really great book, won the Pulitzer Prize, written in the early '90s, uh, by Jared Diamond, talking about how uh, Europeans use guns, germs, and steel to conquer, you know, other other parts of the world. Yeah, very very interesting. And maybe
1: let's uh, qu- quickly talk. So you mentioned Accelerate Startup, your your book. What, what uh in, in there pulling that together? What what, what do you think? We, could you distill down into, uh, you know, if, if someone's in the Early stage startup or whatever, an entrepreneur. What what what's
0: kind of actionable um, key lessons that you you think, um, yeah, you you typically share with people? Yeah, I mean, I would say so. The reason I wrote the book is to kind of prevent that first year or two of pain and suffering that all entrepreneurs go through as they're learning what it's all about. It could be somebody that's very young, somebody college age, you know, right after college that has a technical background. Or it could be somebody mid-career as a manager that's switching careers and they think they already know how the business world works, but the startup world is very, very different. So the book is is really for somebody to kind of how do they generate an idea, how do they validate an idea, you know, and then how do they get to product, how do they and then how do they get to build a company? So it's really kind of soup to nuts. There are a lot of books, you know, the reason I, I wanted to write that book is is it is comprehensive. It is from beginning to end, right? Whether it's a good outcome or a bad outcome and how to get through that. And in most cases, to be fair, it's going to be a bad outcome for most startups. Uh, But uh, there are lots of books out there on, you know, how to do product management, how to do customer discovery, how to raise capital, you know, various qualities of of those kind of books. But there's nothing that kind of connects the dots from start to finish. And and that's really what uh, the book's all about. And uh, there are a lot of things you have to pay attention to, and you have to be a really strong generalist if you're going to start a company, if you're if you're going to be a tech founder, and, and you really need to build the right team. Um, you need to take the right type of money and you need to very quickly validate your idea and not not presume that whatever popped into your head is automatically going to be correct. So the best companies, you know, if you read about them, they've iterated over years, you know, it, you're never going to stumble an idea and it's just going to work out. You're going to stumble an idea or a general area. You're going to start doing, you know, experiments just like a scientist would to validate that idea. And then you're going to increment on it. And that's how you're going to build a product and technology and get out the other side to something that has mass appeal you know, to your audience. You know, the, the the key thing that, that I learned from Dave McClure, who's a friend and a mentor, uh, former investor of mine, founder of 500 Startups, is the customer problem framework. Who is the customer and what problem are you solving for them? That's really what you should be starting with. Not, I invented this widget. Let me see who I can sell it to. Right. That's, that's really the approach. Yeah. And that's gotta be tough. I mean,
1: thinking of like the electric vehicle space, it seems like a lot of kind of research projects of, Hey, here's a, here's an improved whatever component that, uh, we need, we need to go sell because they're going to make all these improvements. And yeah, it, it seems like maybe the, uh. There's not a clear understanding of what the need is and what the customer looks like within whoever is going to buy it in
0: the B2B space. Yeah, I mean, you you need to understand, you know, if somebody's inventing something, um, it's a tricky thing, right? So when I was at HP, HP has HP Labs, which is um, a group of PhDs whose KPI, whose measure of success is how many patentable technologies they create and invent. But it's, a, it's up to completely different people in the company with a different mindset and different set of KPIs to commercialize that technology. So it's really important to have that, that connection where you, you're not just inventing things for the sake of inventing, but you're, you're solving problems, right? And that's really the difference. And it kind of goes back to my background. There's a big difference between artists and designers. Artists, uh, they, they are doing self-expression, right? They're, they're getting out something that's inside them. And if the world appreciates it, then they're a successful artist. Designers solve others' problems, right? They get a task and say, "Okay, I have this problem. I need you to design a solution for me." right whatever the um the area of design we're talking about or the discipline, that's really what it's all about and And that's really important for everybody to think about when they're creating something new. Don't just create for the sake of creation uh, unless you're a true kind of you know basic science uh, person, and your job is to to do invention. Um, but if you're an engineer, you're, really, you're like a designer. You're, you're creating a solution for a problem.
1: Yeah, good good way to put it. So Vitaly, I, I really have enjoyed this conversation. I think it's, it's been uh, great getting your perspective on uh, a lot of the stuff we've talked about here in the investing space and then that some of these different trends, all, all that type of stuff. With that being said, I guess any closing thoughts that you want to get across at any place else you want to send people? Any key takeaways you're hoping anyone who is listening to this uh, walk away with?
0: Um, you know, my, my takeaway is, uh, you know, if you're in a startup space and you're, and you're looking to create something, you know, spend the time to, to really research your idea and make sure that wherever you're planning to invest your non-refundable lifetime is worthwhile. Um, if you're looking to reach out to me, you can find me online, golem.net or on LinkedIn. And I'd be happy to, to chat with you about uh, things that you're working on. So thanks for having me, Bren. And, uh, and, and great to have you on, on my podcast here as well. That was my conversation with Brandon Bartnick, host of Future of Mobility podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to give us five stars in your favorite podcast platform and share with your friends. If you hated it, share it with your enemies. We have much more in store on this season of Accelerated. We'll see you on the next episode. And as always, you can find me at golem.net.